1: With your hosts, Garrett Prahl and Boudreaux Boswell.
0: All right, guys, so today we're going to cover some Q&A, some questions and answers. Uh, Since we've been started this podcast, we've got a lot of questions and answers through Instagram, Facebook, uh, YouTube channel, everything like that. So today we're going to kind of go through some of that list and go down the list one at a time. Um, A lot of these are kind of directed more towards Garrett and reference a lot of his videos. um, But there's some in here that are kind of a mix for both of us. So you ready for this, Garrett?
1: Oh, yeah. As ready as I'm going to be.
0: All right. So the first one up is from Mark on Facebook. Do you use a rope mod or buckles with climbing sticks now?
1: Yeah. So I've used both. Um, In one of my recent videos, I said that I was going back to the buckles from the rope. And the reason that I gave for that was that the climbing sticks are the speed option, whereas the steps like the wild edge steps are more of like a compact option. So if the steps are the speed option, you might as well make them even faster by going with the buckles. Basically, in a nutshell, the buckles are faster, easier to use. The ropes are much lighter and they, um, are less noisy or less potential to make noise cause there's nothing metal on them. And it's probably something to be completely honest. I'll go back and forth on whenever I'm using the ropes. I'll think, oh, I could do this even faster if I had the buckles. And whenever I'm using the buckles, I'm always thinking back to how nice and quiet and lightweight the ropes were. Um, right now, I am using the ropes. I'm back to those AM Steel rope mods on my climbing sticks. But who knows? It might just be something I go back and forth on forever.
0: Which makes sense. I mean, you think about it, the weight versus the noise potential. It's just, you know, it's kind of up in the air at that point. You both kind of got to, they've got their advantages and disadvantages. Yeah, for sure. All right, so the next one up is from outdoorsman.alex on Instagram. Advice on cutting down full-length climbing stakes.
1: Yeah, so this one I've seen quite a few threads on, on both the Saddle Hunter and Hunting Beast and Facebook. Basically, the two-step climbing stick with a longer step spacing has become very popular. So what a lot of guys are doing is they're taking full-length lone wolf sticks or full-length hawk helium sticks they're removing the middle step basically, and they're shortening the sticks from their full length down to like 24 or 26 inches. Then they're reattaching the hardware for that top step um, and then attaching something like a Versa button to be able to attach the stick to the tree. Um, And so I guess my advice on that, number one, just uh, it should be obvious, but be aware that you're voiding any kind of warranty and you're taking all safety into your own hands when you do a climbing stick mod when you're taking a beam like that, that starts off at a longer length, and it only has basically two tree brackets that are contacting the tree, the shorter you make that span, so the shorter you make the climbing stick, the stronger it's gonna be because you're shortening that that beam. So there shouldn't be much of a risk. Uh, I wouldn't go ahead and just start drilling a bunch of holes everywhere because that's having a lot larger impact, but simply doing something like shortening the beam that that climbing stick on from a mechanical standpoint has very little impact on the overall uh, strength of the stick, as long as you're doing everything right.
0: So I'm just going to kind of spin one off of that. Would you recommend buying a stick and cutting it down or doing like a DIY option?
1: Well, if you can get the steps like what you did with your muddy Hunter sticks, and then you get your own aluminum, that's fine too. Um, with something like the hawk, a lot of guys like the hawk sticks and how those steps fold up. And in that case, I mean, you're pretty much, you'd have to buy the stick. You, it's pretty tough to be able to mod something like that from scratch yourself because I got that custom extrusion, but you can go either way with it.
0: Okay. So here's one that we got from just a lot of people from across the board. Um, they want to know what unit did you go to in Colorado? <laughs> yeah. It's whenever I upload a, an elk video or a mule deer
1: video, that's a question that gets asked very commonly. And I don't think it's ever something I really answered in public. I've answered a few guys through private messages, but one thing to remember is that anytime that I make a video that potentially gets thousands of views and I answer a question like that, then all of a sudden thousands of people instantly know what unit that was. And part of it is I, I don't really want to share, but the other part of it is too, that I think that there's enough elk and mule deer in Colorado that It's like whatever unit you pick, you're probably going to have just as good of a likelihood as another unit. Um, I think kind of the micro scale and how you hunt it is probably more important than what unit you pick and doing research as far as, you know, harvest stats and statistics and all that kind of stuff. So realistically, I don't think the unit that you pick, if you try and like go the same unit is probably not going to make any differences if you pick your own, Um, which is kind of the way I look at it.
0: I'll just put it out there. If you say that unit, it's going to turn to like the Wasatch Front here in Utah. It is slam packed full of people. You will see more people than deer in a day out here typically. <laughs> that next All question
1: right. looks like it's pretty similar.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, they want to know if you hunt from Carlos Avery. Yeah. So or do you hunt Carlos Avery?
1: The Twin Cities metro area has a ton of public land around it. And on the north side of the metro, there's like a 30,000 acre, no, it's not 30,000, it's like 20,000 acre uh, public marsh called the Carlos Avery Wildlife Management Area. And because it's so large and because it's so close to Minneapolis, just about everybody and their brother knows about it. And it gets just pounded with pressure. But despite the fact that it gets pounded with pressure, it also has a very good habitat for bedding cover. There's a lot of water, a lot of cattails, a lot of bog stuff. That's really hard to access. And as a result of that, even though it gets a lot of pressure, there's still a lot of places for deer to go and deer to hide. So there's still big buck opportunity out there and kind of the same along the same lines of the unit thing in Colorado. Um, I don't usually come out in public and just say which like WMAs, I'm hunting around the twin cities. I will say that I've hunted quite a few of them, Carlos Avery is one, but there are several others that I've hunted and continue to hunt. Um, When you get something that's so close to home like this, part of it is if I start giving out spots and trying to be helpful, not only does that give away the spots that I worked to get, but a lot of these places I talk with uh, in confidence with some of my friends that also hunt the same areas. So if I give away spots or tips to certain places that I hunt, that's also affecting the people that are close to me that share information, uh, and confidence with me. And I don't want to necessarily spoil their stuff either. Um, but if you're thinking about going to Carlos Avery, there's plenty of deer. You just got to do your homework, look at any place else, um, find the spots that are overlooked and it can, you can definitely have a great hunt out there. I know a lot of nice deer that have been taken from that wildlife management area.
0: (laughs) A lot of, a lot of, um, kind of tiptoeing around to basically say, I'm not going to give you my spot, but you do your homework and you can find a really good spot. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's the
1: thing. Like with any of the stuff that I try and tell people, it's usually not necessarily like a pinpoint, but it's like, here's the stuff to look for. And if you can find this stuff on your own, like you're gonna, you're going to do well, you know?
0: Which makes sense. I mean, nobody wants to give away their spot.
1: Right. Try and, try and teach a man how to fish versus giving him a fish. And I, I point a lot of people to Dan Infault stuff because that's the, the type of DVDs that would, you know, ABC give you the, the breakdown of how to hunt and scout a place like that.
0: With social media now and everything, stealing spots, especially out here in the West, has become huge. Because like if you post, a, you know, a gripping grand photo and you have the background of the mountains behind you, a lot of people can pick out what mountain range that is and pinpoint what basin you were hunting in. So, you know, a lot of people now won't even post any type of um, background, like of a mountains or a skyline or anything. It'll all be down into the timber or into the rocks basically. Oh yeah.
1: Yep. Fishing is the same way. Somebody takes a trophy photo and all of a sudden you see there's the you know, telephone tower in the background. Oh, I know where that is. (laughs) You know, Um, yeah, it is what it is.
0: Yep. All right. On to the next one. Uh, we got this one from a few people from Instagram. It was Dakota cart and on YouTube grizzled millennial want to know, do you like four fletch or three fletch better?
1: Um, I guess I go back and forth. I'm shooting four fletch right now. I tried three fletch with longer veins and that seemed to work fine too. For me, the biggest thing is if I shoot four fletch, then it gives me, like you said last podcast, one more spot to be able to knock tune to. And in addition, I have plenty of fletching clearance from the cables and the rest. I'm able to use a lower profile fletch. The veins I'm using right now are fuse the Q2i Fusion X2, which are actually a target vein, And I have those in four fletch. And I'm getting great broad, broadhead flight with that setup. So
0: that's what I'm using right now. What about on your traditional bow? Are you running two, three, four?
1: Uh, I have three right now, three five inch feathers, but I might play around with that.
0: So I run a, I run four fletch as well. And I run a lower profile vein. I think they're about 2.8 inches long and about 0.41 inches high. Um, I think they're a swift. I don't even know who makes them. Um, but I run a four fletch on my compound. And then on my traditional bow, I run the same in a feather. So it's a 2.8 inch feather about the same height, but I only run two fletch on my traditional bow compared to three fletch, just for the fletching clearance, basically passing through the riser and on the riser. Do you have that set
1: just off a of vertical?
0: Uh, yeah, at about the, oh, two and seven o'clock or somewhere in that range, probably two and eight. Okay. That makes sense. Whatever that comes out to. So basically one of my lower fletching goes between my shelf and my side plate so there's no contact with the riser and you're shooting off the shelf you're getting pretty good flight with that that setup yeah getting yeah getting really good flight and the benefit of that is a lot of weight forward so a lot of front of center Um, you don't need as much fletching to steer the arrow because like we've talked about in other podcasts it's basically pulling the arrow right all right on to the next one a lot of people ask this question Will you ever make a set of climbing steps, sticks, or even just a step?
1: Yeah. So when I made that video last fall of my DIY climbing sticks and showed how I cut out those steps on my router, I mean, there's literally been, not even kidding, like dozens and dozens of people that have asked for climbing sticks and I tell them no. And then they ask for just the steps and they can get the tubing. And I also have to say, no, I looked into what insurance would cost if I wanted to cover myself for doing something like that. And there wasn't even close to the amount of return. Uh, in addition to that, my machine, that's like pushing what my machine is ideally supposed to be capable of doing. Um, it cuts aluminum and it cuts wood, but it's made for cutting wood. Ideally, if I was cutting aluminum, I'd want a better machine, uh, something with a little heavier weight and a little bit more power behind it. So with my job, it ends up being like, Oh, I can do like maybe one step a day. If I have free time that afternoon, it ends up taking like two weeks just to get a full set of sticks together. It's just not worth my time. Um, so what I've told some people is if they can find the steps like you did with your muddy hunter sticks, you can make your own. Otherwise you don't need a router. A lot of guys have made their own steps too, just by using other tools like uh, a combination of like a drill press and table saw or like a table router. There's other ways you can make those steps and you don't have to cut the trough out of the step. If you want to use two bolts, that'll also keep the steps from pivoting as much. Um, and then there's also the great option of just waiting until Dan comes out with his climbing sticks, which should be, I think any day now, he's going to start taking pre-orders on the hunting beast website. And, uh, to the best of my knowledge, so far, they're going to be two pounds a stick, including the, uh, strap, the cam buckle. And then they are going to be, I think around $80 a stick or so. But they'll be, which functionally almost identical to the sticks that I made. Um, but they're obviously going to be manufactured a little bit nicer.
0: And so if it, you guys haven't seen the Dan Infault stick, you can go over to thehuntingbeast.com and look at his stick design. Um, it's a really good design in my opinion. For me, the biggest, the two biggest things for sticks is step spacing and how they attach to the tree. Um, I'm not a VersaButton fan, and I like long sticks, or step spacing. Um, but step spacing is something that you could just buy a new tube, replace that harder. Like what we were talking about with the, um, cut down stick question, would you cut it down or basically build a new one? Yeah. And he basically made those sticks to be
1: his personal sticks. He made it how he would want to make them. Um, he's got tons of experience doing, um, his beast style of hunting. So if anybody would know what a good climbing stick would be, he's the guy.
0: All right. Next up, this is a really good question. It's really interesting. Um, I'm interested to hear what your answer is going to be from Instagram. J Turner, four, nine, nine, eight says, if you were to buy one GPS today, what feature would it need to have?
1: Yeah. So like five years ago, um, I probably would have had a different answer than I do now for hunting around the Midwest. And a lot of my whitetail stuff, I've almost entirely replaced my handheld GPS with my cell phone just because I'm never out in the woods long enough where battery life really becomes an issue. And I can always carry a spare battery bank as well. And my cell phone service and GPS signals is usually good enough that I don't have any issues. The cell phone screen is much brighter, much clearer, much better detail, easier to look at. And with the various apps that are available, I can do most of what I would want to do on my phone. That being said, out in Colorado, I'm absolutely still going to use a handheld GPS and a couple of the features that are pretty much need to haves in my opinion, one is topo lines. You can either get them pre-installed on the GPS, depending on what version you get, or you can find a free website like gpsfiledepot.com, download your state's topo lines onto that GPS using some kind of free software to transfer that information and then you can get that topo information on your GPS. Um, Having the ability to load aerial images on a handheld GPS isn't as important of a a thing for me just because usually the screens that come on those handheld GPS's are low enough detail, low enough resolution that it's really hard to make out stuff anyway. I'd rather just look at a map and then be able to correlate that with the topo lines that I'm seeing very clearly on my GPS. The one feature that my Garmin 62S does not have that I really wish it would have is the ability to uh, see where your buddies are in real time. I think we might have talked about that last fall a little bit. Um, Basically, it's for one, a safety feature, and for two, it's kind of a practical thing, being able to make sure that you're not going to be covering the same ground that somebody else just covered. Um, We have to kind of guess right now because nobody has their cell phones on all the time when we're out in a group. So if you're out in a group and you have no way of really communicating with your friends other than a walkie talkie, it makes it tough to know exactly where they are in real time. Um, and if they're, they've got their stuff turned off on the way back, um, you may not know a half an hour after dark if the person is hurt or if they're still on the way back. If you're unable to get communication, having a real-time location of at least knowing that somebody's moving could be a big deal. Um, so if I were to get a GPS now for the Western use in hunting in a group, I would get a GPS that has the ability to see in real time where everybody's at. I think the Garmin Rhinos are that way. There's probably a few other ones as well.
0: I think the, the Onyx, the new digital map on your cell phone thing has kind of given a lot of people some false security about using their phone in the back country, um, especially out here in the West, is that your phone will break a lot easier than your gps will Um, crack the screen on your phone or you break the screen you're going to have a lot of issues if that's all you're relying on as a gps Um, so to me having a basic kind of idea of land nav um, using a compass and a map you know wherever i go i typically have a map of that area with me and a compass just for general land nav use Um, but as for one feature to have in a gps I really don't know of one. I don't need a a big screen. I mean, topo maps are nice, but if I have a map, I have that on my my physical map for the most part. Um, so topo lines aren't as necessary. Really, all I need to do is be able to mark a waypoint like my truck, my camp, and where I drop my pack. And to be able to navigate back to those three points, basically, um, would be the biggest features that I would have to have, which every GPS made nowadays has that mm-hmm. ability to just navigate back to those points. Yep. All right. On to the next one. Um, from a lot of people again, advice on camera gear. Uh, what about camera brand, you know, Nikon, Sony, what about that? What are your recommendations on camera gear?
1: Yeah. So a lot of questions I get are, what do you think about this camcorder? And it's usually a camcorder that runs in like the 200 to $400 price range. And to be completely honest of the cameras that I've used, uh, in the lower price range, kind of that entry level consumer camcorder. There's not a ton of differences that I see in image quality. Uh, for me as a self filmer, some of the features that I like to see, and I'll probably do an entire podcast or video at some point on my entire self filming setup and why I choose what I choose. Uh, but basically I want to have the ability to run a shotgun mic directly into the camera, not bypassing with an external recorder. I want to be able to plug in a uh, remote to handle the on off and the zoom. And I want to ideally have 4k as a self filmer. It's not as necessary if you're filming other people, but I find that it's nice to be able to film in 4k and then crop in post. Um, and then the other thing you get with a more expensive camera are nicer things that just help with image quality overall, better sensors, bigger sensors, uh, the ability to gather more light through a larger iris. So those are things that they're harder to tell people what the difference is going to you know, show up as, but when I look at the footage from a cheaper camcorder that I've taken and I look compare that to something like the FDR AX100, uh, which is still over $1,000 used. Uh, actually, you probably get them under $1,000 used now. I mean, it's just a big difference in image quality. So that's kind of what it boils down to. Usually with a cheaper camcorder, I mean, you're basically running auto mode, you're turning the thing on, you're hitting record um, and pointing at it, and you're going to have kind of grainy low light, You're not going to have much control over the image. And that could be a good thing. I mean, you might have um, a situation where you might not know how to use the features that a more expensive camera could give you. And in that case, you probably would be better off with a cheaper camcorder and just live with a little bit lower image quality. And that's probably fine for a lot of people. Uh, But just know that there's probably not going to be much difference in what you choose as long as you're like under that, four or $500 new price range. So you might as well just get one that has as many features uh, as you want or find one that you get a good deal on.
0: Which really makes sense when you talk about, you know, the features, are you going to be able to use all the features in a more expensive camera compared to a lower end camera? If you think at some point you're going to be able, you're going to learn to use those features, or you're going to know how to use those features properly. I think that's a, a big thing to consider. Um, you know, for a lot of people who are just out there trying to film their hunts for their buddy or for their own, um, interest, I guess, uh, you're probably not, but if you're trying to go out there and make videos like you do on YouTube, high quality videos, things like that, eventually you're probably going to want to learn to use those features to the fullest extent of the camera. So I think that's a really good point.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right, let's see. Next question up lost where I'm at. Okay. What is a good go-to method for climbing a tree? What do you do if you encounter a big branch? And have you modified the wild edge steps so you don't have to tie them every time?
1: So to answer the first part of that question, what's my go-to climbing method? It's still probably climbing sticks. I'm still hanging on to the wild edge steps and getting a lot of practice with those just because the the whole bulk factor is, is so you know, it's just a big difference um, in terms of how well those things pack and the fact that you can stuff everything that you own and are taking out on a hunt inside of a backpack, that's that's pretty nice. Um, But still for me, the go-to is climbing sticks. Uh, Climbing sticks with aiders for me. Um, What I do if I encounter a big branch, so there's a couple ways you can handle this. Um, If you're close to the ground and it's a small enough tree, um, what I sometimes find myself doing unofficially is I will hug the tree trunk with my knees and if I feel totally secure sometimes I'll just flip that lineman's belt up over that branch Um, that's obviously a a very risky thing to do I don't um, recommend that people do that but I'm just being totally honest Um, usually the best thing to do is to use a second rope when you're going around a branch so that might be your tree tether so you have your lineman's belt below the branch you hook up your tree tether above the branch, just long enough that you can flip that lineman's belt over the branch or reclip in, then you remove that tether and keep on going. Uh, Or you could just continue using that tether as your lineman's belt up until you hit the next branch. Or there's another option that we saw down Saddlepalooza. Uh, One of the girls there, I think Jess, had a piece of Amsteel rope, 764, it's the kind of rope that you usually use for like tying um, a hammock, um, oh, what's the word, a bridge line. Uh, so it's a very thin diameter am steel, but very strong 1,600 pound brake strength. And you can clip a carabiner into that. It's small enough that it fits in like the tiniest pouch within a pouch. It takes up no space at all. And basically what she would do is when she would get to a branch, she would take that little piece of am steel out, throw it around the tree, clip into it. Basically just long enough to unclip her main lineman's belt, pass it over the branch, reclip in, and then continue to climb. So there's a couple options. The main thing is you ideally want to stay connected with something no matter uh, what you do Um, and have i modified the wild edge steps at all no i have not i pretty much just tie that knot every time the second method of tying the knot where you just do the loop and flip the loop around you'll have to go to wild edge youtube channel to see what i'm talking about there's two methods of tying the knot and the newer method is the one that i like i find it a little bit easier especially if i'm tying the uh, the steps overhead
0: yeah, I completely agree. For me, the go-to climbing method um, has always been my muddy my muddy pro sticks um, for the longest time. Uh, they're just to me they can't be beat from the design and the method the way they go on the the tree. Although the um, those Enopow climbers that I got off Amazon and and modified mm-hmm. those are really interesting. And I've actually got another set uh, made by a different company that I have right now that I'm working on a review for. Um, they make climbing trees really interesting. Like I enjoy climbing trees now because of those. (laughs) So it's, yeah, it's really interesting. Like I will actually just go out and climb a tree for kicks and giggles because it's so much fun with these things on. Um, so they're, they're a little heavier is my only complaint. If they could figure out a way to make them just a little bit lighter, um, they would probably take over for my muddy steps. Um, because the, yeah, the benefit is like because they don't fully wrap a tree, like say a climbing tree stand does. When you encounter a branch, you don't have to undo the entire thing. Basically these only wrap around a little over half of the tree. So if I encounter a branch, I can completely remove this climber off of the tree then step up above the tree limb and then stand on it again. So any tree limb that I encounter, I can completely remove my foot off of the tree and then put it back on and continue to climb up. Um, I can spiral around the tree as I go up or come down the same way. So they're really interesting. I'm really starting to to like on them. Do you like Um, them better
1: than the modified Ian Powell ones?
0: Uh, yes, because they adjust a little bit easier, and the foot box for them is better. Um, but they're a little heavier than the EnoPow ones. Um, but they those are the two biggest things, the biggest advantages over the EnoPow ones that I have seen. If you could kind of hybridize the two, I think they would be a fantastic climbing option uh, for hunting from a saddle or from even a hang-on tree stand if you wanted to use them that way.
1: And what do you do once you get to your platform setup?
0: Typically what I've been doing is I will just unhook them. I have them hooked to my saddle so that once I get up there, when I'll set my platform... And then I'll leave them just below it. And as I'll step up onto my platform and then I'll pull them up and I'll hang them on the back side of the tree, or I will hang them off of my platform down below me basically. So that way they're not really an issue. They're not around the tree where I need to move.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Looking forward to that review.
0: Yeah. The, the big branch question, you know, I think everybody does it. It's all kind of a judgment call. If I'm in a really comfortable position and I feel like I can just quickly unclip, my lineman's belt go over the, from underneath the branch to over the branch and clip back in, I will, but I always carry a second carabiner, a spare carabiner on my saddle, just so that if I encounter a situation like on a leaning tree where I'm leaning away and I don't feel comfortable enough to do that, I will use my tree strap or my tree tether to clip into my lineman's belt, go over that limb, and I'll use a spare carabiner to click into the other side so that I can move up over that limb pretty easy. All right. On to the next, how do you set up a backpack with hang on and sticks uh, from Troy on Facebook? I don't know if he's talking about how you carry it in or how you set it up once you're in the tree.
1: Um, I, I guess I can just cover both. I mean, the easiest way to attach a backpack is just to bungee it on. Uh, so if you're climbing sticks, you can either lay your climbing sticks flat or lay your climbing sticks on the center of the stand or use something like stick talons so you have a big open expanse across the middle of your tree stand platform you basically just slap that backpack on some open space use bungee cords in an x configuration to lock it onto the stand uh, once you get into the tree i mean the easiest thing to do is just use uh, a bow hook whether it's a screw-in hook if you have that available or a strap-on option and then you can attach that to the, uh, the back side of the tree
0: So to me, this is a benefit of a, a saddle is your backpack goes on your back compared to on your tree stand, where you have your tree stand and your backpack on your back. You know, when you're wearing a saddle, if you wear it in, you have that backpack on your back, makes it pretty easy to carry in. Um, that was one of the biggest complaints I always had with tree stands was, you know, how do you carry all this stuff if you have a, a climber on your back or if you have a hang on with sticks on your back and your bag, basically. Mm-hmm. All right. How do you pack sticks with a saddle? This is Um, from Matt on Facebook.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. It's kind of related to the very last question. So when you have a tree stand, obviously packing your sticks isn't that big of a deal because your platform already takes up such a large surface area that attaching sticks to them doesn't really have that big of an impact on your overall carry package. But with a saddle now, all of a sudden you're just using a backpack. And a lot of times the climbing sticks are longer than your backpack is. So how do you deal with carrying the sticks? Uh, one option that I've tried and works fairly well is to use something like a duffel bag strap and attach that to your climbing sticks and just carry them over your shoulder. That works really well in general. The only time where it gets kind of goofy is when you're climbing or walking through some really tall grass um, or brush when you want to try and stay as streamlined as possible. Um, so the other way that I have done it and like it is I open up the backpack, shove the climbing sticks down into the backpack and then zip the backpack up as high as it'll go. The top of the sticks will still be poking out of the top of the backpack, but then I just use a night eyes gear tie to kind of connect the loop at the top of the backpack and then just kind of cinch those sticks tight so they can't swing around and, and move back and forth
0: so you're running those sticks vertical along your spine basically
1: yeah yeah and mine are short enough that they're still not sticking up over my head i can still bend over and crawl underneath stuff and they don't really get hung up too bad i
0: don't i don't really use a backpack per se i use a small sling pack um so i don't have the room like you do to put the sticks in a backpack so i've always carried mine either with a an additional tree strap or tree tether that i used um and I carry them basically under my right or my left arm, a slung over my shoulder, basically, like kind of like what you're talking about. Or I'll use a um, new archery products makes a Apache bow sling. I'll use that on my sticks. And like you said, when you encounter brush or something, what I do is typically my bows in my left hand. And then I'll grab the sticks with the right hand. I'll just kind of point them both the direction I'm going. So then that way they're following with me instead of getting hung up on stuff to the side or behind me, basically. Mm-hmm. Do you have any issues with your climbing stick aiders blowing in the wind? This is a question we talked about on the form a while back. Yeah. Um, it's never been
1: an issue for me. Uh, they do blow around a little bit if it's really windy. Uh, usually it seems like for me, if it's early season and there's a lot of leaves still on the trees, it's like that movement just kind of blends in with the movement of the leaves and stuff blowing around and the grass. It seems like you can get away with a lot more movement in general early season. Once it gets to later in the season and everything's just kind of barren, then that movement of the swaying um, aiders can be a little bit, uh they can stand out a little bit more. I've never had a deer spook because of my aiders blowing in the wind. Um, they don't really blow that bad unless you get a really stiff breeze. Uh, but I have heard a few people mention that they think it's it's caused them to um, basically have a deer spook. It's definitely not out of the the realm of possibility because they do move around a little bit. I just never, I personally haven't had it, haven't had it happen to me.
0: Yeah, to me when I when I look at this question, it's you know, the, yes, the aiders are blowing in the wind but so is everything else in the woods. So, you know, your tree limbs behind it, tree limbs in front of it, anything that's in that, in the woods are going to be moving with the wind. Can a deer distinguish an aider blowing in the wind from a broken tree limb blowing in the wind, you know, so then you kind of got to look at deer vision and how poor their vision of detail is basically. Um, I think it's highly, highly unlikely that a deer is ever going to see your aider blowing in the wind and blow out because of that it's one specific thing. So to me, I don't use aiders. I don't like them personally, but I don't see that an aider blowing in the wind would be any different than anything else. Yeah. What
1: is their vision? Like 2060 equivalent or something like that?
0: Yeah, it's very poor. I think the level, if I remember right off the top of my head, the level of detail that a human can see at 100 yards is what a deer can see at 20 yards, if I remember right. So think about if you hang a climbing stick on a tree and you back up a hundred yards, the level of detail you see on that climbing stick is what that deer sees at 20 yards. So, pretty poor detailed vision, basically. Now, obviously, they can probably pick up motion a little easier, but it's basically like severely squinting your eyes and looking at something at 20 yards.
1: It's like you can see it, but you might not know what it is.
0: Exactly. Another Aider question, another one from a lot of people. Questions on movable Aiders. So, an Aider that basically you carry... You move one aider up as you go up. Kind of like the Dave T style from the saddle hunter forms.
1: So it does solve the issue of aiders blowing in the wind. I have tried the Dave T style aider. It's just basically a large aider that you stick on the top step of your stick. So you hang your first stick on the tree. You hang that aider off your top step. You climb up. um, And then once you are standing on the stick, you take the aider off of the climbing stick. You climb up. Attach your second stick, attach the aider onto the top of the stick, and then step into it and climb up. Um, And then on the way down, you can sort of set your foot in the aider, and then once your foot is kind of secured in the loop, set the aider on the top of the stick so you don't have to worry about fishing your boot inside the swinging around aider loop. Um, And I, it does work really well. The only potential or theoretical issues with it are that you know, theoretically, like if you're doing something like, uh, putting the Ader around your neck as you're climbing up, like theoretically, if you fell and you fell like longer than the length of your Ader, which is probably already pretty unlikely. And you happen to catch that Ader loop on your stick, like you could hang yourself. I think the likelihood of that actually happening is astronomically low. Uh, the only other issue more, I guess, likely to happen would be you accidentally drop your aider and then you got a big gap to try and, um, to try and jump down. So, I mean, I, I like it. I've, I might actually use it this year. Um, you just got to be aware of the potential issues. And if you're okay with that, then you might as well give it a shot. You just got to make sure too, that nothing on the top of your climbing sticks has anything abrasive uh, or sharp at all.
0: Yeah. Really good point about putting a the aider over your neck. Um, you know, like you said, the likelihood of you falling, but, you know, say you're in the middle of transitioning from, you know, go over a limb, like we were talking about earlier, there's a potential hazard where you could fall the length of your aider, um, something like that, you know, just a good point to bring up. All right. So climbers versus hang on with sticks. What, which would you prefer?
1: Um, I think the only time I would prefer a climber is if I was in some place like down South where they have those big stands of pines that you can just do like telephone poles all the way up. That's probably the only time I would ever want or choose to hunt out of a climber. Um, A hang on will be able to handle any tree that a climber can handle. You just need more sticks the higher up you're going to go. Whereas the climber, at least in the Midwest here where I hunt, especially when you get into marsh country, or if you get into a country where there's a lot of evergreens, that climber really severely limits your ability to hunt wherever you want to hunt. And you're hunting for the right tree more than uh, hunting for the right spot. So I'm almost always going to go with hang on and sticks for that reason.
0: I agree. Hang on on sticks over a climber. I would probably, depending on the area, I might consider hunting off the ground before hunting out of a climber. From Facebook, Cody asks, tips on buying a kayak for hunting? It's,
1: it's actually a harder question to answer uh, than it seems like because kayaks inherently have some disadvantages for hunting. They're really good for getting into spots, but they're not very good at carrying gear, um, especially like kind of your recreational, kind of your 200 to $500 kayaks. They're not very stable if you stand up typically. Um, it's easy to get wet when you're paddling in them. So for cold weather, you got to be using some kind of water resistant or waterproof rain pants or else your paddle is going to drip all over your pants and you'll get wet. Um, so the alternative, there's two alternatives to a kayak. One alternative for a kayak is a canoe. Canoes are much, much better for carrying large amounts of gear. Uh, the downside of the canoe is that they're not going to be nearly as maneuverable as a kayak is. But if you were going to go on like a, like the Boundary Waters bear hunt that we did, we're going across large expanses of water. You got two coolers full of dry ice, all your hunting gear, tree stands, and stuff. It's like a canoe is the only feasible option. Um, but if you're just solo and you're hunting for deer, then you got to kind of weigh the the pros and cons. Kayak's going to be easier to get there. Canoe's going to be easier to drag a deer out. Canoe is also going to be lighter, typically, if you are willing to pay for a good one, um, an expensive canoe made out of uh, fiber or uh, Kevlar. Excuse me or graphite is going to run you like between 40 and 45 pounds carry weight for like an 18 foot canoe. So they can be incredibly light. Uh, Whereas a a kayak, if you're getting like a touring kayak, they're pretty light. But typically the ones that guys use for hunting and fishing are like 50 pounds on the low side and they just get heavier from there. I think the one Greg uses is like well over hundred pounds. Like he's using a trailer to, to drive that kayak down to the launch. And that's one of the advantages too, of using a light boat is that if you don't have an actual place along the side of the road to drop your rig, you're going to have to carry that kayak or that canoe for X number of yards to actually get to where you want to put it in the water. Um, so I don't really have any great suggestions. Uh, the middle ground is to get something like a new canoe where it's kind of a hybrid between a canoe and a kayak and carry hundreds of pounds of gear. Um, it's a little bit heavier, so it's not going to be very easy to carry. But it's probably the best all around, I would say, for a hunting style kayak, because it can carry the weight of you and a deer, and it's still going to be reasonably easy to maneuver. Um, And you can also attach a motor to it if you wanted to.
0: Yeah, I've noticed in the past few years, it seems like kayak hunting, hunting from a kayak has gotten a lot bigger. And it seems like people are trying to go that extra mile to get away from people. Um, So I've noticed this, this has come up a lot lately. And speaking of your Boundary Waters bear hunt, um, a lot of people just had questions about the bear hunt in general.
1: Yeah, a lot of people uh, saw the video that I posted a few years ago when we did that hunt and liked the idea of it and wanted more information like tags um, or logistics or tips. And the reason that this hunt is very challenging is that the Boundary Waters canoe area wilderness is completely closed off to baiting. And the thing that you need to realize about Minnesota and the black bears in Minnesota and the terrain in Minnesota, especially up in the boundary waters is that the land has a lot of water. It has a lot of bogs. It has a lot of swamps and it has a lot of thick, thick, thick evergreens and just nasty brush and stuff that you don't even want to walk through. So being able to visually see bears is very hard to do unless you happen to see one walk out on the side of a lake. Um, so it's landscape. That's very conducive to hunting uh, with bait and around the entire perimeter, I guess the Southern perimeter, cause the Northern perimeter is Canada, the Southern perimeter is loaded with guys that are baiting. So bears with their fantastic sense of smell, they can smell those bait sites along the Southern border of the boundary waters. And so I think that close to the border, a lot of those bears are getting drawn into those bait sites. So in order to up your odds of success, you got to go deeper and deeper in the challenge with that is that you also need to be able to get your meat out since there's no motors allowed in the boundary waters. There's no wheeled carts allowed. You're portaging everything. The DNR recommends that you carry a cooler with like X number of pounds of dry ice. I can't remember exactly what it is off the top of my head, but it's a lot. So you're carrying a lot of stuff. So if you do happen to paddle a half a day to get into wherever you're going to hunt and then you're hunting without bait, say you're using scents or you're using calls or whatever you're going to use. It's kind of tough, I think to be able to actually pinpoint what a bear is feeding on out there. If you do happen to shoot one, now you're looking at September where it could be fairly warm. You got to get that bear quartered out. You got to get it in the cooler. You got to get it back to the vehicle. It might be, an entire, you know, eight, 12 hour event, depending on how deep you are in there. So it's, there's a lot of logistical challenges with that type of hunt. And if I were going to do it again, I would plan on taking like minimum a week of solid hunting, like just going up there for a couple of days on like a weekend here, weekend there just isn't, isn't going to do it because I don't think there's, you're really giving yourself a good enough chance uh, for the sense to work. You just got to be there. Literally, if you want your best chance, I think you're using sense and you're sitting there from basically uh, dawn till dusk every day for like a week.
0: And, you know, maybe using the first two or three days of just nothing but hard scouting in whatever area you're going to be in to try to find the the freshest bear sign in that area. Yeah. And
1: and I'll be totally honest. It's very, very hard to scout on foot. Um, A lot of our scouting was done just by looking at aerials and finding the edges of swamps um, because actually traversing them by foot is very challenging. You almost want a machete. It's so thick and, and so boggy. I mean, like hip boots and a machete literally is like that kind of terrain. Hmm.
0: All right. A lot of people ask about the electric mountain bikes for access. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think if they're legal,
1: they're a fantastic option. Um, Ernie just bought one or he, he built one and he's been bragging to me about it. I really want to try it out. He basically this bike that he put together um, and we have an upper limit in Minnesota of what's legally considered a bike and then what, like anything on top of that would, I guess, be considered. I don't, I don't really know, but if you have up to like a thousand Watts, you can basically ride it anywhere. You'd be able to ride a bike and it's classified by the state as just a normal bicycle and you can get go into like over 20 miles an hour on a mountain bike. Um, you can pedal and have it power assisted, or you can have it just like use the throttle and you're basically just not using any effort yourself and you can just drive. The big advantage, um, one, is speed. If you have a place that has a lot of acreage and it has kind of your uh, forest service roads or logging roads or whatever that you can use to get from one location to another, you can really cut some time off of your trip, both there and back. Um, And then the bigger advantage is with getting a deer out of the woods. If you have the ability, Uh, to legally quarter a deer and you can put that in like saddlebags on the side of your bike on the backs of the tires and stuff like that then that makes getting a deer out of the woods a lot easier or if you can hook up some kind of child cart Uh, if you're using like a fat tire bike and you don't you're just using your own power no electricity then those bikes can get really hard to pedal and you're you're moving pretty slow they can go on some really rough terrain but if you have any kind of incline it gets really hard to paddle or pedal Um, If you have any kind of snow or ice or, you know, whatever, it just makes it a lot harder. So having that electricity to give you a a little extra boost can make a big difference.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest thing is checking the laws because even some federal agencies will classify them differently from BLM to Forest Service to national parks. Um, They're all classified as different methods of transportation basically so it's really knowing the laws because i know they're they're pretty stringent on what you can use where yeah you
1: pointed out federal land like a lot of the stuff we have around the city is we have uh some federal like national wildlife refuges and does the the, whatever laws they have supersede what the state law is i would imagine they probably do so yes it's definitely something you gotta look into
0: yeah. So while it may be legal in the state to use up to a, a thousand Watts, it may be illegal to use any motorized assisted bike on federal lands, for example. So you've right. kind of got to know where you can use it and where you can't. A lot of people ask, can you look at a a map of their land and show them where you'd scout?
1: Um, I've done this a fair amount in the past. Um, what it comes down to, honestly, a lot of the time is just the, the spare time that it takes to do a good job. Like if I, if it's a type of terrain that I'm familiar with, if it's like marsh country or whatever, I can tell people this is kind of what I would look for. Outline some transition lines and some potential bedding areas and, and stuff like that. Um, but if it's like a 20,000 acre refuge that they got 10 miles from their house, and like, Hey, can you take a look at this? It's like, well, I can take a look at it, but, if I spend a little bit of time, it's not going to be that great. And if I spend a lot of time, then it's not a good use of my time. You know, I'd like to help you out, you know, but so what I, a lot of times will do is I will instead uh, kind of push people to go to the hunting beast forum where they have like a land management sub forum where people can post pictures of their aerial photos and whatnot and have a whole bunch of people uh, kind of weigh in and give advice.
0: Yeah. It goes back to the, teach a man to fish versus giving him a fish right you know you're if you don't learn to scout on your own you're never going to be good at it compared to if you have everybody somebody else do it for you Mm -hmm. all right from kidney stones on youtube sounds painful (laughs) um how high should you go in a tree how high should you go in the tree in a saddle for both bow and gun what's the minimum diameter tree you'd feel safe on um,
1: second part of the question is probably quicker and easier, about four inches or so in diameters by the minimum and that 's not set so much by uh, my comfort level it 's more set by what whatever platform i'm using is able to handle uh, like I mentioned in my most recent video, sometimes if you 're hunting a small enough tree there's so movement so much movement in the trunk of the tree and then the canopy by any little movement that sometimes you're almost better off just hunting on the ground than you are hunting in a very tiny tree. You're so exposed. It's very easy to make movement, um, that a deer could notice and might make them skittish, even if they don't see you, they might see the tree canopy shaking around and that could, uh, that could ruin your hunt. So first part of the question, how high should you go in the tree, uh, totally dependent on the situation, early season, I tend to not climb as high because you have the uh, back cover and the front cover from those tree canopies. Sometimes I will intentionally stay at like 14 or 15 feet, even if I have the ability to go up higher, just because I know that if I get higher, I'm going to lose the back cover from the tree. That's 20 yards behind me. Um, So you just kind of have to think about what the deer is going to be able to see when it comes out. Usually by the time firearm season comes around, um, the leaves are down for one and I'm able to take longer shots, so I like to usually get myself higher up in the tree so I'm able to see more stuff, especially if I'm hunting over a marsh and I can kind of see down into things.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that part of it is you know it's really how high you need to go depends on the situation where you're at. Obviously, if you're in a pine stand where the, you know the lowest limb is twenty-five feet, you're gonna to want to get up there pretty high. If you're hunting in a thicket where most of the tree canopy cover is you know 12 15 feet that's all you really need to be so it's that part is all dependent on you know what you how high you need to be for cover and for the best visibility because you may stop at 15 feet and have great visibility go up to 18 feet and have you know 20 yard visibility basically um the minimum diameter of tree in which you'd feel safe on i have hunted some very very small trees in saddle hunting um that i don't recommend anybody hunt um <laughs> So it really depends on two things, how comfortable you are with the tree you're hunting and moving and the type of tree in which you're hunting Um, because you don't really want to hunt a soft tree like a pine tree, you know, that's only as big around as a 20 ounce soda bottle Um, because it's probably not going to hold your weight once you're up there. The smallest tree I hunted out of was, I was probably about 15 feet off the ground and I could almost get one hand around the tree where I was tied in at. Um, when I shot the doe from that stand, when I leaned out to shooter, like you mentioned, the whole tree leaned about two feet before it stopped. And my shot went from about four yards to almost straight down on top of her. So, um, that's, it's really dependent on your size and the tree.
1: We are going to pause right here. Believe it or not, we've only gotten through half of the list. So we're going to cut this podcast in half. You just listened to part one and part two will be our next episode so be sure to tune in for that one as well. We'll answer more questions related to saddles, climbing goofy trees, ropes, carabiners, cold weather gear, logistics of carrying tons of extra clothing, and more archery setup questions. Also, we will be doing a giveaway. Arrow Hunter is officially releasing the Mesh Kestrel on July 4th, and we'll be giving one away. So if you wanna be considered for that, you have to keep an eye out on social media. We'll have details on Instagram and Facebook for sure. I'll probably do a YouTube video as well But it's important to get in on that now because the giveaway will probably be done before our next podcast launches. With all that being said, be sure to give the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network a review on iTunes, tell your friends about it, and thanks for listening.